and welcome to Football Unfocused. We haven't done one of these episodes in a while. So by popular demand, by which I mean probably about three or four people have messaged me in recent weeks, uh, we decided to knock out uh, an episode in the middle of the summer, which, to be fair, we did um, we did say we'd, we'd talk about the Champions League final um, in the last episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we didn't. I'm Mark, that's Matt talking there. Um, and this is Football Focused, if you've never listened before. Did you watch the Champions League final, Matt? I mean, it was um, what's it, over a month ago now, wasn't it? Um, I was at a wedding. But I saw the last 20 minutes of it and I felt like I hadn't missed too much. No, it wasn't a great game. It was quite cagey. It was probably City's most mediocre performance of their entire Champions League run, which is so often the case with finals. I mean, like, we, um, what was it, four years ago when uh, our two respective clubs met in uh, a colossal encounter in Madrid. Like, both clubs had had, that's Tottenham and Liverpool for anyone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> both clubs had um, had these, like, amazingly dramatic and incident-filled routes to the final. And then, final actually happened and it was just like a proper drab oh, it was it was awful. Game. but there are times when i think the tension has a genuine sort of physical and mental impact on the players to the extent that they they sort of rein themselves in and yeah that, that night that night like liverpool got uh, a penalty early doors and then scored and because they'd they were so good then and they were basically barely letting in goals at that yeah. spell, you know, towards the end of the 2019 season. I think they just sort of knew, they sort of looked at something and thought, I don't think I don't think you're going to score against us. But they didn't, it was like they were more frightened of slipping up than they were of, you know, confident of sort of going for more. And even though they got the second goal, it did, I think Liverpool scoring that early in a lot of ways killed the game, certainly from a neutral perspective. That's not yeah, yeah, a yeah. that anyone other than the fans of the two clubs will particularly remember, and similar to the Man City game, I think, you know, everyone expected them to win. They're playing against a team in which they are, they're, they're definitely superior. You know, the, as I heard someone say the other day, it was a, the third best team from the third or fourth best league. Um, but you can call it a third or fourth best league, but they provided a finalist in every European final the Italian league did. I mean, they all lost, but still, they all got, uh, they got to final. Um, but City... I was one thing I was pleased about. Well, there are two things I was pleased about. Firstly, um, that they actually won it with a, a moment that, of play, a genuine quality of creative play, rather than a sort of nil-nil going to penalties. I don't mind a penalty shootout at the end of a good game. But I hate nil-nil in penalties. It's like, hmm. like World <laughs> Cup final, USA '94, and uh, Champions League final 2003. Some of like the worst matches I've ever seen. Um, but uh, yeah, and the other thing I was delighted about, for obvious reasons, is that uh, you know they've now won the uh, treble, which wouldn't usually make me particularly happy. And, and, <laughs> uh, an immorally funded nation-state club um, have uh, you know cleaned, cleaned up all the trophies, but you know it was a much better achievement than when that other lot won their seventy-nine points league title treble in nineteen ninety-nine. So fuck you, Old Trafford. <laughs> um, but anyway. Matthew, I always begin uh, before we start talking about um, uh, other stuff. Um, I always football. begin this podcast by yeah, football. football <laughs> uh, that stuff. I always begin this podcast by um, 
uh, asking you three insightful questions that give us an insight into you as a person because your contributions on the football content uh, <laughs> side of this podcast might be considered uh, lacking, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> well, I haven't actually pre-prepared any questions this week, but I thought what I'd do, seeing as this is a summer episode and is likely to be followed by maybe a little bit of a break before we refresh from the new season, um, I thought I'd give you the opportunity to kind of assess and, and predict. So, Matthew, question one. You're a, you're a, a big cycling fan. And at the moment, you are revelling in uh, the uh, Tour de France, you, you're literally you've got it on all day while you're uh, while you're supposedly uh, working. Um, um, who's going to win the 2023 Tour de France? Um, I really, really hope Tade Tade Who will win? Um, I think. Bear in mind, I people think... are people are. You know, about to run straight out the front door down to the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Vinny, uh, Jonas Vinegar will win. Right. Just because he's a bit more consistent. His crown. Yeah, he's a bit more consistent. He's got a good team as well, hasn't he? He's got, got, he's got a ridiculous team. It, he's, it's, his team is ridiculous. I mean, they're just, they're like the Ineos of, you know, mid of now yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so uh yeah that's what i think but yeah it's brilliant i do when you were just talking about how tension can sort of basically stall a football match and turn it into a bit of a, a dire yeah. experience so just how someone like Tade bagaccia you know there's so much pressure i mean um tour de france biggest cycling race in the world biggest biggest event in in france generally of the year and uh he just he just cycles like he's just without a care in the world and just There's a joy to it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's it's fantastic. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I love watching him. Uh, love watching his approach. It's very, very refreshing. When he first came, he slightly the dramatic way in which he he um, nailed Roglic at the end of the was it twenty twenty. Yeah. He went in twenty and twenty one, didn't he? I found yeah. I, 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 really, I thought Rodley deserved to win a tour. Yeah, maybe. Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe even the cynic in me did think, "Oh, wow, that's ludicrous." Oh no, uh, everyone was. was that, everyone it was. It was that time trial, wasn't it? Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I think that he's just an incredible talent. Um, yeah. Why is Roglic? Because Roglic is in Jumbo. He, Hitler, isn't he? Why is he not? Yeah, racing? yeah. He won a. He won the Giro. Yes, but is that is it so it's literally as simple as that? So he's never gonna go and be Oh a, it's 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 uh, it's almost support rider. No, 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 no. He's he, has been he, done though. People have won the Giro and the Tour in the same year. Uh yeah, when there was a lot of drugs, I think. Uh <laughs> so I think um Chris Boone never did that then, no? No, no. So Pentagon He went as well and the uh, tour Pen- in the same year. Uh yes, he has done that. Um, are, you, yeah. are you on record here accusing Chris Froome of being a drug cheat? No, no, no. Pen, pen, no, 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 no. But but that is a much more common way of doing it. Uh, because is people Cadell coming, Evans a drug cheat? Um, yes. Winner. I, it was very, very, it's very likely that he did take drugs. Because I know he's been signed up by uh, ITV4 as their latest pundit, hasn't he? And I, yeah, I yeah. Him, and so is David Miller. Yeah, but David Miller's been open about it. Did did, did, did Cadell Evans ever be caught? And... It's because he was never caught. Yeah, Cadell Evans wasn't right, so ever caught. He's not a drugs cheat, Matthew, just for the purpose. Yeah, but he he worked with the same, you know, quote unquote doctor that uh, Lance Armstrong was using. Oh, that 
that, that's <laughs> certainly not not dodgy uh, guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll, exactly. We'll remember him from the films, the documentary. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Nothing shady about it. He was, he, was, he was a good doctor. He was very good. Very doctor. good doctor. Yeah. He would prescribe you. He was a good <laughs> doctor. Yeah. Very good doctor. He'd prescribe you uh, foot creams like that. You know, just yeah, whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ibuprofen, boom, he'd have it straight to. And if so, you wanted to just yeah. dispose of any medical waste, just stick it in a coke can, <laughs> yeah. crush it up. You know, so he was really—he's quite, um, you know, it's ahead of his time in terms of environmental impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was. Yeah, yeah. Aluminium is recyclable. <laughs> Good. So vinegar is your is your bet. Unfortunately, I think so. Yeah. Question two, Matthew. What are your plans for the summer? You're doing anything that's worthy uh, jo- of telling the, our, our millions of listeners? Joe's going on holiday. <laughs> right. She's going to Ibiza. Without you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in some ways, that it's like the perfect summer. So Joe gets a nice time going away, and yeah. I get to save money by not going away. And, um, wow. I mean, your tightness has gone to another level that you'd it possibly rather... Has. It possibly has, but... You'd I rather mean... stay at home in, uh, uh, like, a, I don't know, like a, a, a house on your own, in, you know, a, a sort of, you know, a stuffy room that you've been in all day working than go to a beef <laughs> with your life I, t- I told you about our mortgage. You we, we've had to switch... More. We've gone, you know, our fixed, fixed yeah. home came to an end. And we've Joe's paying it as well. Yeah, yeah, we had to go interest only because we they went. It's it's mad. Oh, so, I, I mean, I know we're all fucked, mate. Cheers, yeah. Liz. Cheers, Liz Trust and Quasi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, and thanks, um, Rishi, for coming in and really, you know, stabilising the uh, shit. You're doing a great job. Oh Just yeah, yeah. And he cares as well. He told us. I, I was inspired by him last week. He said, uh, "We're just going to hold our nerve." And I thought, yeah. Yeah, the millions of people who are being asked to, you know, double their monthly mortgage payments because of the economic catastrophe caused by this uh, worst government of all time, they are going to feel so much better <laughs> that have just been reassured by the our, uh, our billionaire prime minister, who's definitely in touch, definitely in touch with all our needs, and knows what it's like to be a sort of single mum on a council estate, and. Uh, uh, for him to say, hold your nerve, was just so inspiring. So inspiring. <laughs> Do you feel reassured and inspired, Matthew? Yes. Good. And I think when, and I, I suppose by staying in the UK, what you're really doing is you're, you're being patriotic. You're backing Britain. Yeah, well, staying in, my, staying in the UK. Yeah, and staying at home and sort of yeah, playing with your yeah. bikes rather than going to Ibiza. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. That's, I think that's is, what... Is Joe going with a, her lover? Her, her <laughs> <laughs> uh no she's not well she said she's not but right, yeah she i don't yeah but uh yeah do so, you know who she's going on holiday with well she says her friends but yeah friends. you know she she's friends. she's she's asked for she's she's not taking much luggage so yeah, i don't know the phone behind <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> i won't need that <laughs> yeah yeah you'll you'll hear from me when i'm back we're yeah, good yeah I'm coming off social media for a while. <laughs> good, good. Excellent. Uh, and finally, my final question, Matthew. Are you planning um, to watch any football in the 2023-24 season? Uh, I'll watch the... Quite looking forward to the World Cup. Um, 
Is that that's 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 you're talking about the women's World Cup, which yeah. is which is technically twenty twenty two three season because it's the oh, end okay. of the season. This season, uh, I'm sorry, next season once it kicks off, which culminates, I, of course, in in Euros next summer in. Um, in oh yes, yeah, so oh, yeah, okay. So I watched that, and I watched the um, that new club that's come up where you have to go through somebody's living room to get to the ground. I can't remember the name. See, that, even though you're, I mean, showing, <laughs> you've certainly, I mean, that's a slightly ludicrous sentence. Firstly, you describe it as a new club. Uh, I'm assuming you're talking about... A new club town. in the Premier League, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, basically, what that is demonstrating is that a club like Luton making it into the Premier League oh, is such a captivating narrative that even somebody like you is, who is, shall we say, a little bit less uh, passionate about football than maybe some of you'd expect uh, who co-host a football podcast, um, that, that is actually drawing you in a bit because of the, the, you know, the, the novelty value. Of- oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And is it the whole thing about you have to walk sort of through someone's like side passage to get into the away? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that. And, and just seeing like these, I think, I think you were talking about it on a previous episode, just to sort of seeing these megastars, you know, in a ground that, how big's the ground? It's not even 20,000, is it? about 10. No, it was about 10, I think. Yeah, but yeah. But my Bournemouth's ground only holds about 10 as well. So yeah. I don't even know. That'll be pretty tight as to which one is the um, is the smallest ground. I suppose the difference is that Bournemouth's ground is a bit of a kind of flat pack, characterless sort of hellscape, really, in my view, those types of stadiums. <laughs> like in the middle of a kind of public park. I've been to that ground a couple of times. Uh, and it's like, it's just the, the, the sort of epitome of... Sort of joyless, you know, no history, no character, no nothing. It's just like a Lego stadium. Whereas Kenilworth Road is the complete diametric opposite end of that scale in that it's, you know, a reflection of the Victorian era in which, you know, football, uh, uh, professional football in this country was emerged from, you know, it was built in the community clubs where the ground would form around tight terraced houses. And that remains the case to this day. And that's why you have this quote yeah. that everyone seems obsessed with about, you know, how tiny it is to get away. And at some point, I think during the 1980s, when Luton were last, you know, genuinely successful, they won the League Cup and they had most of that decade in the top division. Um, they kind of re... They, they sort of one whole side of the pitch is essentially what looks like a, a series of um, conservatories uh, in someone's... Um, like back garden in in a sort of you know aspirational social climbing nineteen eighties <laughs> housewives and um, um, yeah so it's all this I'm assuming that that is mostly used for sort of corporate hospitality how oh, right. there was for that in in the national league days I don't know so I, I don't know whether and that's the you don't see that stand so much on the telly because that's where they film from so you know they've got to spend ten million quid on their stadium just to get it ready for uh, to right. have um, the uh, VAR technology usable in there and essentially Sky and BT ready. So not BT, TNT Sports <laughs> um, uh, ready. So, yeah, it is. How much would a club get, to, do you reckon, uh, being promoted into the Premier League? How much? It's over 100 million quid. Uh, um, right. They get their money in two chunks uh, in the season that uh, they get it in July 
and then they get it in January. And that's why it's quite interesting. I was listening to a, a journalist the other day saying that's why you'll off, you'll get a flurry of activity all of a sudden in the, the summer transfer window once you hit uh, July, once you basically come out of June, even though the window's been open for a month. It's bizarre. Just, it, I, I suppose it demonstrates, A, the way that a lot of these clubs um, operate in terms of their accounting um, and report, financial reporting, but also... Um, uh, how terribly run they are because they, even though they're getting you know access to all these hundreds of millions of pounds every year, hmm. they still need that next uh-huh. lump sum to hit the bank accounts. You know, like literally living paycheck by paycheck. Really, it's, uh, yeah, it's quite tragic. Um, so yeah, so that's why you get that. So they will now. Uh, Luton are probably already in receipt of you know maybe sixty or seventy million quid, something like that. Um, I think I think I'm pretty sure I can't remember if I don't we're going to speak about this. I maybe have um, just quickly went up. I think the figure of around 130 million, kind of overall, is the figure. Mm. But what that also factors in because they'll t- they'll say it's a minimum of 130 million because what that does is that assumes that the club is going to get relegated, and then that factors in because they get um, a, uh, the parachute, the, the parachute payments exactly, which a lot it's quite a controversial subject because they say it gives them a disproportionate advantage to them once they're in the championship because they've got these huge sums of money coming in to sustain them. But that is essentially there to stop clubs going bust as a kind of shock shock absorber yeah, yeah. because they lose all that TV money, the revenue drops off the cliff. And if they weren't to get the parachute payments, then you'd have clubs that would get relegated and that would be the end of them, I guess. I suppose there's an argument to say tough luck, run yourself run yourself a much tighter ship, a sustainable ship and you know then you'll be able to cope with going up and going down. But um it just doesn't seem the way that the the capitalist model isn't known for its restraint, is it? I know. I was, I was thinking that. What you know that that's that's only quite sort of um, hard nosed of you, Mark. Well, yeah, it's almost like um, maybe people deserve to, to be like, poor. Yeah, they they do. Yeah, <laughs> Bring I, actually it on have a relative, I actually have a relative who who says that uh, met my parents <laughs> recently, I believe, and, and, and I think argues that people are only poor because they're they kind of have it. Themselves to blame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it suggests that they've, they've either kind of they can't be bothered to do anything about it, or sort of lack the wit to do anything about it. Yeah, it, it shouldn't be the fault. It shouldn't be the problem of the the successful people. And I'm sure that's a point. I'm sure that's a point of view that we can all get on board with. I mean, it sounds fair and reasonable for a better Britain to me. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So um, the people who did message me about the fact that we haven't had an episode in a few weeks seemed quite keen that we speak about Saudi Arabia. So I'm very happy to speak about Saudi Arabia. Matthew, <laughs> what do you what do you want to talk about Saudi Arabia? Do you want to talk about its its uh, history and geology? It's uh, no. evolved <laughs> yeah. as a state. The fact that uh, pretty much all of the uh, 9-11 hijackers came from Saudi Arabia. Do you want to talk about oh, that? that's an interesting, uh, yeah. T- Isn't it? Isn't um, it? Yeah, they're they're sort of the lead, lead invaders of uh, of Yemen. Yemen, yeah, yeah, um, and some other tidbits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but, go, go on. on. Well, no, no, I was, no, just, no, I was just going to say how because I know you wanted to talk about it from a football perspective, but it's just it's I think it's obviously you know the issues with the the Saudi money coming into football is is kind of 
uh, part of a bigger, a wider discussion about, because for so long, <clears throat> the richest countries in the world were, demo, you know, democracies. Yeah. And, you know, the fundamental principle of a democracy is is equality. So my vote way is exactly the same as anyone else's. Oh, right, yeah, of, sorry, you mean equality. Print- I was going to say, that's, that's where the equality ends, isn't it? Yeah, 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 but that is one 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 vote per citizen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, And so, whether you loved democracy or you loved getting rich, you you kind of you you know you found your you could find your home within a democratic country. But now we live in a world where actually the kind of the fastest growing and the wealthiest countries probably are, are on the you know are not necessarily democratic and so yeah. it's it's kind of a so people are having to decide well do i do i want to live in a democratic country do i want to sort of uh live within the values and 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 the sort of um, the ideas that that often is held within democracies or or do i want to just get filthy rich and um and i think this the the choice is is becoming is is creating starker uh, decisions because you're literally choosing between countries rather than being able to yeah, have I, both within the same I had place. Someone on a on a WhatsApp group that I occasionally dip into and just sort of sigh and turn away <laughs> from it um, said the other day that Saudi's human rights record is not even that much worse than the Americans, right? And that is such a, I mean, I don't even know where to start with that. That's such a warped point of view. The, the main way in which that argument falls down. Even if, right, I don't doubt that you certainly could, if you want to do a sort of study of history, you certainly could um, pull out and list uh, almost countless examples of American-backed atrocities. You know, they've got some appalling um, uh, foreign policy, just as most Western countries have, not least, of course, the one we're sitting in right now, which has one of the most shameful histories imaginable, but you know, to deal with the American comparison, because like, yeah, because it was a discussion. It was a it was a, a Liverpool-based WhatsApp group, and it was talking about how <laughs> you know we shouldn't be snooty about any future owners coming from somewhere like Saudi Arabia when we've been owned by Americans for the last decade, and you know, so Americans, of course, have you know done all sorts of stuff, invaded sovereign countries, and um, you know, backed corrupt regimes in order to stop left-wing governments in particularly South America and Central America from gaining power. They have propped up uh, regimes in the Middle East that have, um, you know, sold them cheap oil in order and, you know, on the sort of flip side of that has has then legitimised their repression of their own people and uh, strangulation of any sort of freedoms. Um. And you know, a very co- you know controversial way in which they kind of um, unequivocally back Israel, regardless of kind of what they do in um, in uh, uh, Palestine. So putting all that on the table, well, clearly, you know, anyone could do it. But the fundamental difference as to why you kind of you've kind of already alluded to it is that if you don't like the American government then once every four years, there is an incredible expression of democracy called a general election, and and they very frequently boot out leaders or have the opportunity to air their grievances and to publicise, you know, scandals and 
you know, foreign policy issues and all of that sort of thing. And no one's having, you know, um, that no one's being dragged into an embassy and chopped up for speaking about stuff like that. That's essentially the key difference. It's not that bad things don't happen elsewhere. It's the way in which bad things are then treated and the complete lack of freedom. So I, I suppose it, it is always a little bit unfair when we talk about Saudi Arabia, we sitting here in a kind of Western bubble when we talk about Saudi Arabia um, as this kind of, you know, we just we just focus entirely on the negatives. I suppose not similar to like Qatar when, when it was hosting the World Cup without really thinking about the point of view of the individual citizen within that country and their right to, you know, enjoy football just as much as we arrogant bastards who are used to the Premier League over here do. Um, so I'm not denying that at all. And Saudi Arabia, unlike some of the Gulf states that are really kind of trying to essentially drop in a sort of a purpose-built or almost like franchise model of, um, you know, just sport to sort of help legitimise their um, uh, uh, regimes and the whole sort of bread and circuses thing, you know, just you know, to keep them distracted from the, the real truth in their lives. Um, you know, the, the real problem, which is, you know, the, the people who just deny them any sort of freedom um, and take all the money. Um, but Saudi Arabia is a proper football country. It's not like just some, I think, I think they've qualified for pretty much the last six World Cups in a row. I've got a feeling they didn't qualify for 20, uh, was it 2014? I think they actually might have missed two, 2014 and 2010. But I remember they first qualified in 94, then they did 98, 2002, 2006. And they qualified for the last two. And their performance had been getting sort of increasingly credible. And obviously they beat Argentina in the group stage, who went on to win it in the in the most recent World Cup. And they do have a fully formed and very well-supported domestic league. And people in Saudi Arabia are genuinely fanatical about football. So it's not... From that point of view, I'm not trying to sort of delegitimise it and undermine its um, right to want to build a strong football league. But I suppose, you know, the reason that people are sitting up and taking interest and in a lot of cases taking offence is because now they're they're starting to put their tanks on our lawn, aren't they? Because <laughs> they're all of a sudden, the, the money is just, is it's clearly part of um, Mohammed bin Salman's uh, policy over the last three or four years of, um, well, the the, the, the uh, stereotypical cliché term of sports washing, I suppose that's a, it's a cliché term because it is, is pretty accurate in that, you know, he's got a, an abysmal reputation, so he wants to uh, sort of rehabilitate or, or actually even introduce the concept of Saudi Arabia as a kind of a, an assertion of soft power around the world by paying huge sums of money to get directly involved with some of the most popular and influential sporting occasions. And they've already had, over the last few years, massive impact on boxing. Um, pretty much every Anthony Joshua fight recently seems to be in Saudi Arabia. Same with Tyson Fury. So, you know, the heavyweight division, the most high-profile division in boxing, you know, fighting for huge amounts of money. Those fights um, all seem to be in Riyadh or Jeddah. And I mean, if I gave a shit about driving a car around a track, they've, they've probably got. For, have they got a Grand Prix, a Saudi Grand Prix? They almost certainly have, haven't they? And, yeah. You know, they're big on. You know, they're they're very very influential, or at least their money is very influential in horse racing. Um. 
and has been for a long period of time because obviously that's a you know the sort of you know the social prestige uh, uh, side of that. And football is the world game. You know, it is it is the by 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 a long stretch the most popular sport in the world, and it's the only sport that you can pretty much go to any country in the world and someone will be playing it or talking about it. Um, and um, you know they they clearly see a strategic advantage in firstly buying up Newcastle United and now sort of completely revolutionising their um, domestic league. I suppose if you want to um, pick, I mean, where do you think, as as someone who isn't necessarily as sort of, you know as interested in this as maybe I am, do you think the objection to it? Is the Saudis themselves splashing the cash and making these outrageous offers and, you know, paying these transfer fees and most notably the wages to, first of all, Cristiano Ronaldo as the sort of marquee signing and then, you know, all the others that follow this summer? Or do you think it's uh, the players who are taking the money that are being judged um, harshly? Yeah. uh, So I'll give you an answer. I don't know if it will actually address your question, but... Um, I think there there is an element of very already already very wealthy individuals going somewhere to make even more money, and they go into a place that, as you alluded to earlier, has has sort of questionable uh, histories, you know, with regards to human rights and that sort of thing. And I, I was thinking, I wonder if uh, if a big name footballer you know, so they've got questionable history uh, with regards to human rights, and they're also very wealthy. So Saudi Arabian uh, is also a very wealthy country. But if if a big football name went to uh, a football club in in one of the African you know African nations, who you know, I was looking up how many. I think it's about thirty two African nations um, outlaw homosexuality. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, arguably an e- as equal a you know uh issue with human rights as as the Saudi Arabia would people object as much you know is it so you're you're going to kind of a a, a less affluent continent um you know arguably you if you were offered the same amount of money as you were going to a Saudi Arabian club but you went to a a, a club in Africa would you get that same backlash? And I don't think you would. So I think it's... Well, it's I suppose it all depends it's, on it's, con- context, doesn't it? If, if, that, a, if that had a come few during a time when that country had spent, say, the, the decade previous to that move, um, asserting its soft power and becoming yeah. increasingly influential and sort of throwing money around. And bear in mind, all of the money that is being spent here is by virtue of the, the way in which the society is set up. It is public money. So yeah. it's all money. That you know this PIF, which is essentially their investment fund of the Saudi royal family, that's 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 state assets. So it's exactly mm. the same as, as you know the um, Abu Dhabi group buying um, Manchester City and the Qataris um, owning uh, owning PSG. It's, it's it's exactly the same. It, yeah, I suppose when you look at it from the kind of issue based morals like that, you know you're going to have players. Anyone who moves from the um, Premier League, for example to Saudi Arabia is going to go from a, a culture in which, you know, a couple of times a season they're wearing 
rainbow laces on their boots to show solidarity with LGBT communities to a country in which, you know, you, you, you're not going to feel particularly safe if you are uh, an LGBT identifying person. And, you know, so you've got to ask yourself the question, okay, how much did you genuinely believe in that cause when you had your rainbow laces on um, mm. when you were, you know, signing that new contract? I think that aside, just purely from the sporting point of view, we, we always, I think, make assumptions as sort of laymen and people who have not been uh, fortunate or blessed or, you know, talented enough to be professional sports people, that, um, that people, you know, the, the professionals at the top of their game make decisions that are based upon the, you know, the making their careers, their relatively short careers, as successful and prestigious as possible. So taking on paper, as things stand, taking a move to Saudi Arabia looks to be a slap in the face to that because, you know, if you're Ruben Neves, right, so Ruben Neves is a Portuguese international, captain of Wolves, supremely talented, um, central midfielder, you know, great on the ball, athletic, and his, you know, best years ahead of him, I think he's 25, 26 years old or something like that. There was lots of talk that he was going to leave Wolves this summer. It's pretty amazing that he's had as many years at Wolves as, as he already has. And I suppose it's that in itself is testament to how even the sort of you know middle to lower end of the Premier League has so much money and power now that they wouldn't have. I think we've discussed that sort of thing before. That you know clubs like Bournemouth and Brentford can outbid like AC Milan, second most successful club in the history of the European Cup Champions League. I mean, it's, it's, it's mental, and that I actually think is bad for football because you know as, as again I think we've discussed. I like to see a spread of power across the continent. It makes the Champions League better. It makes just football generally more interesting. I think just having one monolithic all-conquering, all-powerful league that sort of eats up everything else. It essentially turns every other league in Europe into a field league. But so to leave that at your at your that setup at your peak time when there was talk all most of last season that his next move was would even potentially be Barcelona. So Barcelona, I, you know, I'm of the opinion that Barcelona or Real Madrid are the biggest clubs in the world, but just in terms of you know, history, prestige, the, the amount of people who turn up and watch them every week, uh, the, you know, the stadiums, everything about them, they're enormous. And the Real Madrid-Barcelona game is the biggest sort of game in world football, even if the La Liga isn't as a product, a product, uh, isn't what it used to be. Um, that Those two clubs are just absolutely gigantic beyond belief. Um, so to have any, and, and it's always been the case, really, that even the most, even the biggest and most successful and prestigious and high-paying Premier League clubs almost have to kind of, with a weary sigh, accept that if at some point, you know, Luis Suarez or Cristiano Ronaldo um, or Eden Hazard uh, says, right, it's amazing here, I've won all these trophies, and you know, I want to um, thank you and everything, but. I've got an opportunity to play for Real Madrid. I've got an opportunity to play for Barcelona. You, you kind of ha- you have to accept it. But for, so for that rumor about Ruben Neves to be so persistent, so there must have been a lot of um, uh, truth in that. For him to then, at his peak, sign for a Saudi Arabian club, that's the sort of thing I think that makes people sit up and take notice. It's not necessarily that people at the Karim Benzema and Cristiano Ronaldo end of the career. Even in Golo Kanté, I think he's only twenty nine and he's still a I know he's had a very injury-affected um, season, but he's still, you know, a, a premium player. And then you've got also got players like one Jota, one of Celtic's best players, if not Celtic's 
best player left to join a Saudi uh, club um, last week, and uh, you know, you know, Koulibaly's gone, hasn't it? So there are, it, there's a lot of players, you know, making that jump. And then, I mean, you and I briefly discussed it over WhatsApp. The decision of Steven Gerrard to, he's, I don't, obviously I don't like being sort of critical or or even sounding like I'm almost mocking (laughs) a man who has given me some of the happiest moments of my (laughs) sports-watching life. And, you know, absolutely. One of many men. Yeah, well, many, I mean, I've had great times with (laughs) men and men and men. It's raining men. Uh, But he's he's up there with the best, the most memorable, you know. Um, But for him to sort of, I think he was on Channel 4 a couple of weeks ago when they were covering the England um, Euro qualifier matches and he was asked about having had an offer from Saudi and I think he he seemed quite happy to receive the congratulations of the sort of, you know, the the watching public and his fellow pundits at, at sort of relaying the news that, yeah, they'd made him an offer, but it's not right for him and he turned it down. And the implication being, of course, that, you know, yeah, he wants to hold out for a sort of a proper job. And then for him, like two weeks later, to be like, now, actually, I've changed my mind, I'm off. Um, Now, I know that everyone, no matter how rich you are, money makes the world go round and all of that. And if you offer a if you offer a billionaire a billion pounds, they still want a billion pounds, don't they? And I suppose that's one of the reasons why we as a species are so thoroughly sickening. Um, but Stephen Gerrard doesn't, you know, need the money. Um, you know, he was like supremely well paid throughout his long and successful career. Just the amount of money he'd have earned in, you know, sponsorship and endorsements would have been enough to make to last a lifetime for most people. And then he'll have been really well paid as manager of uh, Rangers and then particularly Aston Villa. And he'll have got, a, you know, when he was fired at the beginning of the year or end of last year, he'll have got a massive payoff. So it can't just be about the money. He must have, I heard a journalist again talking about this the other day, he must have assessed his options. I think that there's a chance that he was looking at clubs like Leicester and Leeds, who are big clubs who have just found themselves um, outside the Premier League, and thinking, okay, I'm the sort of guy, I've, I must have a decent chance of getting those jobs. And when he was kind of overlooked and probably didn't even get anywhere close to it, um, which he probably thinks seems really harsh because he did a really, really good job at Rangers. He was the only Rangers manager to, to break the um, Celtic run, stop them winning their 10th in a row. So, you know, the fact that he went into a league where one club had won nine league titles in a row, and he put an end to that. And then went to Man- uh, Aston Villa, initially did really well, and then it did seem to go really sour. And I think what's damaged him is that the sort of noise that came out of Villa during that time was that it had gone really badly. and He lost all the chemistry with the players and the respect of them and all of that. And I think that's probably alarmed people and done his managerial reputation some quite serious harm. But I just don't see... Again, other than the money, which he, he can't. I mean, that, there, there is a lot. It, if you, it's not. It's not a, a reputation big, thing. He can't yeah, win. If he yeah, goes yeah. to Saudi Arabia and wins a league, no one's going to give a shit. And by all accounts, he's taken on a quite a, a rubbish team there anyway, <laughs> who aren't even one of the teams that are spending like the four clubs owned by the um, investment funds. They're not yeah. one of those clubs. Yeah. So I just don't see what he stands to gain. And the difference there is a difference between earning, say, ten million or five, ten million, and earning. 50 to 70 million or yeah, something yeah. like you know there is a mass that is a big difference for an individual yeah. and and also the tax as well 
you know. Yeah, no, I know. I you, get, no, 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 I get all that from the financial set. That's what so, I'm saying, and I suppose it's at a level where it just blows you away. It just, even it if must you are be. Really incredibly rich. But I, I suppose what I'm getting at is, it, is going back to my fundamental point about how we as laymen look at sports people and have always kind of assumed that they make these decisions based on wanting to maximise their sporting achievement during their finite careers. And it just doesn't feel like... I look at it and I think, well, what's he really going to... What's the best that can happen there? The best is that he goes to Saudi Arabia and he wins the league. And uh, that doesn't sound like it's going to happen for the club he's taken. And I, I think I, even if he is, the Western football culture, I don't think he's at a point yet where it... He has enough respect for the Saudi Arabian League for that even to be enough for him to then come back and get the Liverpool job. You know what but, I mean? So but maybe, maybe his confidence, maybe his confidence would have been knocked or something like that. Because if you truly believe that you were going to go on to great things in coaching, you probably would be like, no, no, I'm going to, I'm going to hold out for the the Real Madrid job or the or the you know yeah, Man City job or whatever. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, but, but I could not... sit there now and say I believe I could be a great football coach. So I'm going to hold out for the Barcelona job. Like, yeah, not, but do not, you believe that? Like that does it? If I tell myself enough times in the mirror, then yeah, what's that? Was it that, but, that everyone says these those manifesting stuff? If you say it enough times, it'll happen. Yeah, yeah, but obviously you probably don't believe that. And so if somebody then came along and said, "Okay, Mark, uh, do you mind, you know, managing our team instead for a fifty million? You know, <laughs> then you're probably like, "Oh, okay, yeah." Uh, no, but I, I just think I just think that looking at it from the kind of the, the, the way in which I would assume, again, parking the financials, I would assume that he is motivated. He is definitely someone who would see himself as having a classically successful managerial career, preferably in uh, the, the Premier League, but may, if not, certainly within the sort of, you know, the Champions League family. So someone like him, I don't know, up until a few years ago, you'd see him maybe get, try and take on like a French club. Or a German mm. club, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, do you know Xabi Alonso currently ripping it up, ripping it up in um, at Bayer Leverkusen? Well, even like I know he failed, but Scott Parker mm. tried. You know, he took on Club Bruges last season after getting like dumped out of Bournemouth, and it, it didn't go very well. But I always respect a manager, I suppose, who's who's, who's kind of prepared to go abroad and give it a go. And in, on on that mm. basis, Saudi Arabia definitely ticks the box of going abroad and giving it a go. But it just. <laughs> I don't think they their ambition, their strategic ambition is to is to, and I don't know how these things are really measured, how you quantify the best, but they want to be a, in the top ten, you know, best leagues in world football uh, within the next few years. And yeah, again, I don't know what the what the what the metrics are there. How do you decide what's the the best? Unless, and 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 I suppose this this really looking down the track at this, where I maybe would get a bit more concerned than I am now is that the Champions League, which is probably the best football viewing product uh, in, 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 in the world game and, ha- and has been for a number of years now, it's an almost, I mean, it is, it is in danger of being a little bit swallowed up by its own bloody greed, the way that they're now from next season, as in the season after next, 24-5, uh, starting to give places based, uh, based on historic performance in the competition rather than that you know qualifying that season which you know is again a, a, a sort of you know a, a substitute for their failed attempt to get the uh, European Super League is essentially putting up as many things to make sure that the same clubs cannot do anything other than qualify for it every every single year so um, I am caveating by saying I know the Champions League isn't perfect but you know it is like for, uh, there was a guy there was a guy from uh, I think it was the Athletic talking on, on the radio 
yesterday about how he had um, he was write, writing a piece about the very first preliminary Champions League qualifiers, and there's like I think four countries: Macedonia, Iceland, San Marino, maybe uh, one other. Anyway, that are kind of solo down the, the, the European football pyramid that they kind of have to play this sort of mini tournament of Champions League qualifiers before they even get into the main preliminary pot. Those games were played last week. So that's kind of football. It's kind of purist, isn't it? That's, there's something really beautiful about that. There was quite a heartening story about how when the, the players were so proud to have played, you know, what is still technically a Champions League game, but they were really disappointed to get on the pitch and realise that they don't actually play the Champions League music until they qualify for the group, which obviously they're never going to do. Um, but, um, but I just think if you look at like the way that other sports, you know, particularly American sports, which this kind of vibe really does sort of, you know, tally with in terms of it's much more of a kind of franchise idea. And the way that American sports now are habitually throughout the season kind of shipped out to play fixtures. You know, there was a, I live around the corner of the London Stadium. There was a bloody baseball match here two weeks ago between the Chicago Cubs, is it? And someone else, you know, the the the, the Billy Bong dildos or something. And like, <laughs> and and you know, and they just said, "What the fuck? Why, why is that being played there? What do you? What about if you have a season ticket? Like, and suddenly, oh, this game, oh, we're not just changing the kickoff time. We're playing it in another continent. <laughs> and I know, you know, that's obviously happened. Um, you know, NFL, they they always have matches uh, over here and probably in other parts of Europe as well. And you know, and I just think. The Saudi money, it appears that like they're committed for the long term. It's only really going to go in one direction. It's going to keep going up and up. They're drawing players. So does that mean that something like the Champions League, if we go 10, 10, 15 years down the track, could, you know, the way that Australia seems to always compete in the Eurovision Song Contest now, would Saudi Arabia have the this sort of honorary invitation to start entering their teams into that? And then before you know it, it becomes a global club competition. The Champions League is dead and, uh, you know, everyone just keeps making Gianni and Fatino uh, even richer and probably set Blatter's probably behind it somewhere just sitting there in like a, a bath of like liquid gold um, <laughs> actually he's not dead is he no he's not dead but, uh, I just thought, um, <laughs> so yeah I, I don't know there is things and, and, and again another comparison that a lot of people have made is with China because about a decade ago there was this massive explosion of, of uh, money in the Chinese league and the the, the sort of Chinese authoritarian government had given their approval for for, for a serious investment in football because they wanted to sort of compete on that global stage. And after a couple of they did make a big splash. Someone like Oscar, who was playing for Chelsea in Brazil at the time, got tempted away, given life changing sums of money, about 300, 400 grand a week uh, to play out there. And he's actually still there now, amazingly. But it ruined his career because he's never played for Brazil again. And, uh, you know, it's sort of a just a complete um, footnote in history. Carlos Tevez went out there for a bit and stuff. But that very quickly, they, they, I think they kind of got bored with that, saw the limitations of that model and de- and ch- switched the focus to developing sort of local players and sort of, you know, paying them less rather than sort of going for just high-priced, established, ageing mercenaries from better quality leagues around the world. Whereas it looks like Saudi Arabia are in it for the long haul and really want to get that balance between having the sort of, you know, the the, the players that are going to fill the stadiums and um, boost the TV uh, and online subscriptions whilst at the same time enhancing what, to be fair, what is already quite a sophisticated 
player production model. They do produce really good players, and like I was talking about their World Cup qualification record and performance. So I think that this is to be taken a lot more seriously. And whether that ends up being a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. I suspect, <laughs> I suspect probably bad because let's face it, most I, things usually yeah. are, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, just didn't wanna, I didn't want to be unequivocal in kind of slamming it because I just don't want to go down that road of, you know, because it's easy to do that, isn't it, being a bit narrow-minded. But, you know, when, when, when but I'm trying to be fair about it, but it is money bad. are involved. Yeah, yeah it's being often. spent by people who are not accountable to anyone and, uh, yeah. the, the, you know, the, not only are they not accountable to anyone, but the money which they have is assets that are denied to the, you know, the people of their own state who themselves are denied most of the basic freedoms, freedoms that we uh, take for granted. And, uh, uh, you know, people who represent a variety of minority backgrounds um, are, you know, systematically oppressed and free yeah. speeches, you know, you speak up too much and you end up being uh, take, bundled into an embassy and chopped up and disposed of in a briefcase or whatever the, that poor guy uh, Shoggy was. Um, so, yeah, I suppose. And, and, and bear in mind, it's, what's funny about this is when people talk about social repression in, in Saudi Arabia, they'll talk about, like, minor, treatment of minorities. They'll throw women in there, like women are minorities. They're over 50% of the population. <laughs> so it's not a minority, is it? That's like <laughs> at least half the people there, up until a few years ago, weren't even allowed to drive. So yeah, so, I, so and, and and because the money just does come exclusively and directly from the centre, the power brokers, then I suppose accepting that money, you are legitimising that state. Whereas you could go and play, you know, in America and say, well, my, you know, I'm not playing for, um, um, you know, America. I have, I, I, I despise everything that America stands for, but I'm playing for the, uh, you know, the San Francisco 49ers and they pay my salary and it's got nothing to do with, you know, who's in the White House. And that would be a legitimate point of view because that would be a private business within a democracy paying your uh, wages. Um, whereas that you can't make that separation with Saudi or any of the Gulf states or China uh, or increasingly Russia. So, yeah, so, yeah, so I suppose, you know, it is pretty bad. <laughs> but there you go. <laughs> Could have just said that. Um, so that's it that's it Matthew do you have anything else to add no good so we'll, we'll we might do I mean we'll see me and Matt will just uh, decide as and when we might do in, in, an episode or two before the season but uh, if not we'll be back um, um, roaring into the new season in which Matthew has already committed that he's going to watch at least uh, well actually no you've committed to watching 38 no 19 matches all of which will be played at Kenilworth Road <laughs> yeah Good. Right, on that uh, uh, damp squib of a bombshell, it's time to say enjoy uh, your uh, uh, summer and thanks for listening. Goodbye from Football Unfocused. (laughs) 